episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Erica Heller, Licensed Clinical Social Worker and Licensed Chemical Dependency Counselor, We'll be talking about her work in an area of specialty, the intersection of sexual orientation, gender, and substance use and experimentation. Welcome to the show, Erica. Hey, thank you for having me. So tell us, what are your credentials and experience? As you mentioned, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, which just means I went to an extra round of school. So I have my master's in social work, and I'm a licensed chemical dependency counselor, which was a pretty easy step for me just because of my educational background um, and my interest in working with folks around substance use. I'm also EMDR trained and kind of working through continuing to become more experienced in that. I personally identify as queer, bisexual, whichever word of choice you have. I'm of the realm of queer being, queer being an umbrella term ultimately. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I am cisgender, so of course that really like plays a role in recognizing that I can only speak to so much around the gender aspect, but do try to be as best of an ally as I can and supportive and, you know, love my queer peeps. So love the work I do. Up the queer peeps. I love, I love <laughs> the word queer because it's, it can mean anything you want it to mean, really. You yeah, know? definitely, definitely. Um, so what kind of, you know, as therapists, before we get like, quote unquote, fully licensed, oftentimes, well, all the time we have to do like hours, right? Mm -hmm. Um, where did you do your clinical hours? I did two internships in my master's program. So one was with communities and schools and I worked in Kyle at one of the high schools. So I got to work with a bunch of teens, helped run the Gay Straight Alliance there. It was called the Gay Straight Alliance. Now it's just GSA. Right. And ran some other groups and did some individual work. 
as well as worked at the Phoenix Center in Marble Falls. So doing a lot of play therapy, adventure therapy. We also had a summer camps, very much the therapeutic approach to working with teens and adolescents and families. Okay. And as an LMSW, before you get licensed as an LCSW, you have to do like additional hours, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So takes quite a while, minimum of two years. There's a lot of other fun caveats to that, but I did work running adolescent outpatient, intensive outpatient program, which was mental health and substance use for a while. And then also have worked in private practice, kind of individual, mostly individual, some family work, and have also been case manager for folks with intellectual disabilities, worked through a nonprofit for that, and took a break between all of that to do be a preschool teacher and work with kids. And oh, cool. I also had a bakery out of my house uh, just to kind of break things up for a bit. So very cool. Yeah. So you enjoy baking. Yes, I do. That is definitely one of my fun things that I've done less so as I become just like more tired as an adult and <laughs> I don't like to clean up my own messes, but um, yeah, love colorful stuff, love just being creative and it's fun to watch baking competitions and color research. So <laughs> <laughs> it's my way of being able to justify that. But yeah, it's a lot of Very fun. Cool. There's so much you can do and it's continually evolving. And if I recall correctly, you've done a lot of work with uh, eating disorders as well, right? Yes, I have. So I worked with a practice that really focused a lot on the intersection of eating disorders and various identities, whether that was sexual orientation, gender identity, you know, especially across cultures, and have worked with some higher acuity folks um, that definitely intersects a lot with other mental health situations or challenges and substance use. So kind of all can come together at different points and mm -hmm. it all looks very different. We don't really get a lot of training and eating disorder work otherwise. And substance use, I mean, somewhat, but you have to really be intentional with what population you want to learn about and being able to go ahead and kind of get like the appropriate education and training around that. For sure. I think substance use and eating disorders are two of the more like difficult things to work with, quite honestly. A lot of risk there. Yes. The acuity. It's intense really, work. It's definitely intense. Um, and it's usually not isolated as much as we would love to think like each of these things can be isolated. Like what was the first point that this started, but a lot of it really intersects and overlaps and can wax and wane just really depending mm -hmm. on what someone's going through, what, things at home might look like in one season versus another or things at school or, you know, pandemic, of course, like that's a whole nother can of worms. So it's a lot to really just take into mind about what feels best as a clinician to work with also based with your own experience and history and, you know, what beasts you want to tackle ultimately and bring yourself gotcha. into the work. Yeah. Okay. Well, Erica, what's the name of your practice? My practice is called Heartlines Counseling. It is named after a song by Florence and the Machine, who nice. I love dearly because um, at the time when I was probably in my 20s, first heard, you know, we've all heard like Shake It Out and 
some of those songs, but really loved her music and resonated with it during darker times of my life and have since realized that she's in recovery from her own eating disorder, as well as in recovery from substance use. And I think that really resonates with just like the depth of what her lyrics are and like her music mm-hmm. and her own history. I'm very much an empath and a type two. So I will take all of the meaning and listen to lyrics and really resonate with all that kind of stuff. And music's such an important part of my own self-care and day-to-day and what I do to kind of get through or resonate with whatever's going on with me. And felt like that was something cool because also Heartlines is sort of like a play on, you know, therapy, right? Like mm-hmm. thinking about your emotions and just wanted to try something else out. Yeah. Cool. So at Heartlines, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? I do not accept insurance. And part of that was with the transition from the practice I was in before. just kind of naturally set me up to not take insurance, but it did allow me with the practice I'm in now to be able to have more flexibility with sliding scale, which I know we'll also probably chat about. Um, I do not take it mostly because I know it's a lot more admin and paperwork and Mm -hmm. my executive functioning has limits as far as some of that stuff. I do know it and unfortunately does limit the amount of people I can work with at times. So it is a double-edged sword, really. If you take it and have a lot of challenges or you don't take it, and of course, like that excludes people. But um, I also am very much a relational-based therapist, which I think we'll also touch on as well, but that helps me navigate not having to constantly qualify or quantify diagnoses for folks for services. Mm -hmm. So that can be helpful for too. If somebody has a means or we can work on a sliding scale basis to get them the support they need without having to always put out gender dysphoria or like some other things on there that are not the most politically accurate, uh, so to speak. Okay. So you have a sliding scale. Is it a traditional sliding scale or more of a reduced fee structure? It is more of a reduced fee. So it is on your honor system. I don't make anybody give me paperwork or requirements. So I have a kind of take a look at what my availability is in general with caseload and then have a look at like the lowest I can go, which is currently $75. And then what people make their needs may be at that point. So I'll kind of check in with folks once we've been working together for a while, like, is this still working for you? Have things changed if we do need to go down or maybe they've since gotten a job or have more means financially and they're able to mm-hmm. increase, which then opens up a spot for somebody else or I can negotiate, especially with the pandemic. There's been a ton of changes with parents losing jobs or partners losing jobs or clients. So really just trying to have that flexibility as much as I can while being realistic with my own boundaries and limits that I unfortunately cannot work unlimited hours and also have to pay taxes. So right. capitalism. Fortunate, fortunately or unfortunately, I, I would say fortunately, you can't work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fortunately. <laughs> Correct. Boundaries are good. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. So at Heartlines, Do you have weekend or evening appointments? I try to reserve weekends for personal family time. I used to work a lot of weekends when I was baking and didn't see anybody for months. and It was exhausting. So evenings, especially when the school semester kicks back in and 
right now kids are back in person, so we can't do virtual sessions during the day because they were previously virtual for school. So some evenings, and that kind of restricts to, you know, Tuesday through Thursday or Tuesday through Friday. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Well, it sounds like you've had a lot of different careers. Um, Is being a therapist your first career, if not what was? And I want to hear more about being a baker and a preschool teacher. Yes. uh, I think I was actually maybe 12. I wanted to be a mortician. And that was because I didn't want to have to deal with people all day, which I find pretty funny that now (laughs) I'm doing quite the opposite. (laughs) Uh, That eventually evolved into wanting to do criminal law and then environmental law. So my undergrad is actually in art and environmental entrepreneurship. And that became... Uh, wanting to do like environmental consulting. And after undergrad, I did AmeriCorps for a couple of years, which really taught me more about the social work and the policy and like legal side of things. So figuring out what social work is and what that option is for, there's so much we can do. We can do a lot of policy mm-hmm. work. And I don't have to have a law degree to do that. Or I can do Medical. a lot more like, yeah. Um, and uh, I also have a lot more, I can do a lot more of like the clinical or like direct micro work, so to speak, as we social workers like to break things up. So a lot of flexibility, which is great for me because I like flexibility. I don't like feeling locked down and like I have to make one choice for the rest of my life. Um, In there too, I thought about doing art therapy, but again, that's such a specific path that you can. And and very expensive and time consuming to get a certification or license. Yeah, absolutely. So worked out to just come back to Texas after AmeriCorps and go to our alum at UT Austin. So I got my master's and the baking and daycare preschool role happened after grad school before I really got back into working in social work. I was going through a lot personally and just needed a break from the field with everything. I was kind of working through a lot of my own trauma and a lot of fun stuff like that. So decided, sure. I actually was also a contractor doing a lot of uh, technology stuff for a bit, which is not my thing. Not going to go back to it if I can avoid it. Um, Many hats. (laughs) Yeah, many hats. And I left that to do the baking actually is what ultimately happened. Wanting to do something more creative, but I had more control over and more autonomy. And my partner was very supportive of that with where my mental health was at the time as well. And doing the work with a preschool was great to be around kids and very weird for me to not to be around kids that hadn't had a lot of trauma because I was so used to doing play therapy where, yeah, it's right. not okay to like let the kids sit on your lap. And mm-hmm. as a preschool teacher, like the kid wants to come over and give you a hug. You manage that a lot different than you do as a therapist. So that was a really rewarding experience for me as well to just see a different side of what a childhood can look like without a lot of trauma or, you know, severe, severe situations like that. Um, yeah. It's, it's uh, crazy how our views get skewed like that when you work in this type of field for so long, especially, I mean, especially anything having to do with community mental health. Absolutely. There's such a need for it and it's such a, you know, I hate this word, but like taboo, right? Like, We don't talk about it, especially in rural parts. 
you know, if this is like a very like intergenerational family thing that's been happening or anything else like that, like it seemed like something's wrong with you if you need support or help, or if something happens with your kid, like parents think like, what did the parents do wrong? So a lot of shame, of course, like comes into Mm -hmm. that as well. And that makes it a lot more difficult to be somebody kind of growing up in that environment of like, is something wrong with me? What did I do? And a lot of times if you're a kid with that situation, like you had nothing to do with what happened to you, but you navigate the world differently because of the people around you. Mm-hmm. Well, it looks like you had a lot of options as far as like what you wanted to do in terms of a career. What ultimately drew you to being a therapist? I admit that when I graduated from UT of my master's, I was like, I'm never going to be a therapist. It's like not my jam, not going to happen. And once I got back into doing this work, I, of course, had to go to supervision, clinical supervision. It's part of the you know, if you're an LMSW doing clinical work, you need to have supervisor toward and get licensure towards your LCSW. So that was uh, what you mentioned earlier. And ultimately, once you start that, you might as well finish because it is <laughs> quite an endeavor. It takes yeah. a long time. And I also learned so much about myself in that process too. And learning about how I kind of navigate the world, like through the therapist and social work lens. So uh, once that really happened, it ultimately was really cool with figuring out just like what my like niche is, so to speak, and really rewarding to be able to work with different kinds of folks on the things that they're going through, whether that's the substance use or eating disorder, or like mental health stuff in general. Um, that's something that I really enjoyed. Absolutely. So We've gotten to know you a little bit so far. Um, Tell us a little more about yourself. And I definitely want to hear like music that you listen to. Like, tell us a little bit about your music taste. I grew up in South Texas. I think we talked about this a little bit earlier. So I joke that I listen to anything but Tejano because (laughs) I don't speak Spanish, unfortunately. Like that's a, you know, a flaw, but just not my jam, I guess, kind of the polka e vibe of it. But I will take parchata though. Like, <laughs> I love that shit. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, yeah, currently what's on my list is like Casey Musgraves' new stuff. Of course, Little Nas X, like his stuff is super cool this, right now. Um, it is really diverse all over the spectrum, really. So we've got some have glass animals in there. My favorite is MGMT Kids. That is like been my favorite song for the past 10 years to really kind of get me through anything. And of course, like Florence and the machine, if things are going on. Um, I was just talking to somebody about like Lincoln Park earlier. That was my favorite. Blink-182 will always have like a special place in my heart. So really a lot of like rock, a lot of sometimes heavy metal, uh, sometimes more of like the indie alternative stuff. So a lot of flexibility with all that. Um, TV shows. I used to love CSI and all of that, but that's a little too real once you're a therapist, I think. Um, These days I'm really into like YA stuff. So I'm watching (laughs) like Charmed and Lock and Key and Wyona Earp currently. Um, Yeah, I can't do a lot of horror stuff personally. It just sticks with me, unfortunately. So um, I'm the same way with horror. I also like avoid any sort of 
television, like anything drama. Like I can't do it. Like I don't have the tolerance for it. I feel like I get enough of it, you know, through the work that we do. I don't need to be watching anything like that. Um, and the other thing I wanted to say about Lincoln Park is I often get told that I look like Chester Bennington. And <laughs> I have literally had people run up to me and hug me out of nowhere. Like it's happened at least on like the hugging thing has happened on at least three different occasions. Wow. And I've had like other people walk up to me too. It's so weird. I mean, now that you mention it, I can't unsee it, of course. But <laughs> I mean, must be cool, like to be seen as a celebrity, though he's passed now. But yeah, um, yeah, pretty unexpected, I'm sure for you as well. Yeah, the first time it happened, I was like, "What is <laughs> what?" Like, I and I'm a person who values like my personal space. I'm sure so it yeah. was, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so baking is also a hobby of yours. Any other fun hobbies? I like to do art, um, some arts and crafts, so to speak, is kind of like what that's evolved into. And whether that's just going and acquiring a bunch of things or going to Austin Creative Reuse and looking through what random materials they have. I've made a lot of stuff around our house. Um, when we got married, I DIY'd all of the decorations myself just because I could afford it and it was a lot cheaper that way. And I had the time, mm -hmm. but also a lot more meaningful personally mm -hmm. kind of what I felt. We've got a cat and a dog. So playing with them, we live on a green belt. So going for walks, otherwise just a lot of Netflix hanging out. Um, I like to be outside, especially when it's not a million degrees. Yeah. It's been nice the last few days. It has been really nice. We had a we have a garage that we can kind of open up and just like sit out under. So I don't get sunburned and I can still enjoy nice. the weather. <laughs> Very cool. Um, okay. Well, thinking about when you do therapy with folks, like what modalities do you find yourself drawing upon? A lot of the usual, some of the like CBT motivational interviewing, interviewing uh, some DBT if, I kind of like really need to do some crisis management with somebody. Otherwise, a very relational, I think some people use the like attachment-based, um, just really trying to be humanistic with understanding where somebody is like coming from, being with them in this journey, in this process, and knowing like they are the expert in their experience. It's not on me to come in and say, this is how you should be doing something, but to really understand what is going on for somebody, what are the things that are a challenge for them? What are the barriers? What are their strengths? What's working for them? Whether that is substance use or an eating disorder, like these things are also coping skills, right? So what does that look like? And, you know, just taking a look at harm reduction too, I think is a big part. I know you recently um, had a segment about that as well. So yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, wherever pertinent in, in like, while we talk about this stuff, you're also welcome to mention more harm reduction stuff. I, you know, I, I am very firmly harm reductionist. Uh, <laughs> something like that, yeah. Yeah, something like that. Um, okay, so to jump into this topic, which, you know, is a, a really big issue, and our listener, listeners will hear why here in a second. So my first question is, both LGBTQIA youth and adults have an increased risk of substance use and experimentation. 
Can you give us some stats regarding the prevalence of, of substance use in both LGBTQIA plus youth and adults? Yes. So the biggest things that ultimately stand out are LGBTQIA youth and adults are about two to three more times likely to either experiment with substances, and that might be alcohol, that might be marijuana, that might be harder drugs like heroin or cocaine. Some people encompass tobacco and nicotine as part of substance use. I don't really care either way, but it's just good to know what somebody is doing and how often right. and how it impacts their life. So that can evolve as they get older if they do develop a substance use disorder and they become really reliant on a substance of choice. That becomes a whole nother you know, challenge of navigating. Um, yeah, along with, of course, we talked about like mental health in general. So like the risk for suicidality or suicide um, any of those things, too, can really become a lot more prevalent when it gets into risk and somebody's experience and all of those things. Yeah, for sure. So you and I both know why and how this happens. But let's discuss this for a second. What are some of the contributors to the prevalence of substance use in both LGBTQIA youth and adults? I think not to be all Brene Brown, but shame, of course, comes in, right? So what does that look like at home growing up? Like, how did your family talk about either folks with around a sexual orientation or gender identity? Was that accepted? Was that welcomed? Has there been any, like, ostracization? I'm really not as good as that word. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, you got it. You got it. Um, the also the perceived or actual threat of rejection by family and friends, I think, is a lot of what people stereotypically deal with when coming out, so to speak, right? Like, what will happen? Like, what's the worst case? My family kicks me out. And what does that mean for me and my livelihood? Am I still in school? Am I going to be supported? Can I have access to food and shelter? Also, the lack of I think positive LGBTQIA role models and elders. I mean, we have a whole ton of folks that were lost because of the AIDS epidemic. And that's a very much reality that we face. I think also just the way that the media portrays LGBTQIA folks is generally not, not too great. There's usually a mix of substance use or other things in there, right? Like a lot of like trauma or a lot of... Mm -hmm other really moralistic kind of values come into play as well. And that's not going to make somebody feel super hopeful about what their future looks like. For sure. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of it comes down to like support, support from our immediate family, support from friends, you know, thinking from the, the micro out through the macro, right? Definitely. Definitely, yeah. And there's like a, a hitch in each of those like systems stemming from the individual or a, a hitch can occur in each of those systems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was thinking even kind of coming across with this is what, what do celebrities look like? Like what do we see as celebrities? And yeah, a lot of the times maybe they're portrayed with like alcohol or substances and that's really cool and glamorizing and we can sing along with it, but that is also very much the reality of our culture, not just for 
heteronormative folks, but of course, like within the queer culture. Mm-hmm. And a lot of folks, maybe at some time, just experimented or just dabbled in it or whatever you want to call it, whether, you know, with whatever that might look like. But we've seen people like even Jonathan Van Ness, I was reading his memoir and he's sober, also HIV positive, talks about his experience, even though, you know, he is perceived to be like such a great positive role model, like childhood was so good, right? But we all have so much going on underneath the surface that we don't know, you never know what someone's going through. Even, yeah. Yeah, well, one thing I was gonna say is, you know, one specific drug I can recall in a specific community is like the, um, you know, methamphetamines running rampant in the gay community, for example. And that's been the case for many years now. Absolutely. And not, I don't know anything about how that intersects with, you know, HIV or STIs, right? But I think that we can know that if somebody is under the influence, that that tends to bring up the risk with acts, with a, how much you are to contract something. So right. being mindful of that and a, a lot of that, you know, what are people's reasons for using or engaging in these things? There's a million reasons. So it's right. a lot of things, but some of it can be like, oh, well, this is just what we're doing. Like, it's easier to say yes than to think about, like, do I really want to say no? You have to really actively make the choice of, do I want to be sober? Like, is this a lifelong thing? Is this just a temporary? Do I want to have controlled use around something or whatever that might look like? And there's a lot of like really specific areas to look if you want to find like sober queer or sober gay or LGBTQIA folks. But otherwise, People don't understand it. Like a lot of our culture at times is going to clubs, going out. And what does that mean? That usually means drinking and drugs. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this discussion about risk and behavior leads to my next question, which is because using substances can include some risky behavior, what are LGBTQIA youth and adults also at a higher risk of developing due to these risks? We touched on this a little bit as far as what some folks call dual diagnosis, but that can be intersecting with mental health, substance use, eating disorder, all three, like sometimes substance use can impact eating disorder and of course mental health, right? It sort of all can kind of come in together. I think the risk of uh, increased risk of STIs as well and whatever else that looks like um, a lot of times with rejection, I think there can be like a really specific route where people have to turn to sex work, sex works just to survive, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what does that mean of being able to have shelter and food and a roof over my head at night? And that can also come with a lot of trauma, not just that, but in general, the things that people have to experience or go through just to survive on a long-term basis. And this can ultimately come with some long-term physical health complications you know, whether it's chronic use or you stop and eventually as an adult develop, who knows what else, but it doesn't just end there. And it's not just isolated to a certain time in our lives or a certain time frame. Mm-hmm. When it comes to LGBTQIA youth, what are some protective factors in substance use and also the same, but for adults as well? Some of the biggest things that we found through research, and I say we as if I really do a lot of this personally, but family support. So what does your family unit look like? What about your community folks around you? Are they accepting? Are they tolerant? 
caring adults in your life, whether that's a teacher or for me, it was a band instructor. It could be, you know, an art teacher. It could be anybody else, not just an adult. I mean, not just a, a parent, right? But like another adult in your community. Right. As well as safe schools. So that might look like what is substance use or access to any of that look like at school? Are people being threatened and harassed? And is there a way to mitigate that or actually keep, keep people safe? Those are all things that I think can be really tricky when you're working with anybody, much less with yep. teens, but things that we don't always have access to. And as adults, we find that community is super important. Like the biggest factor with substance use is isolation. And that doesn't always mean isolation like you're using alone, but isolation and that you're not vulnerable, like you know, the shame just sort of runs rampant. And lack of connected really, relationships. Exactly, definitely. So it's more important to be able to have a vulnerable community of people you can really be your true self around. And that's one of the like most important protective factory factors, whether it's teens or adults or any other piece you want to look at. So really what we're looking at here is the ability to be authentic. Absolutely. And heard and held and understand and not try to be controlled in some way, being able to feel safe. I think absolutely um, safe and be yourself, right? Like whether that's identifying as a sexual orientation in a certain way or whatever your gender identity looks like, maybe it's both. It's not just always one or the other, like we know, right? Um, it's a lot of things and it's not just at one point in life, it's gonna be ongoing. So as you evolve from being in middle school to high school, eventually going to college, maybe you're in a new town, you don't know anybody. Graduating into adulthood, you're in a new city, like, do you know people? What is the community? And sometimes the community might be a local bar, it might be another, like, karaoke event, or we have a slam poetry here, and different things like, like that within the community that don't really solely focus around, you know, substance use or some other thing that could be high risk. That's one of my, like, kind of gripes, is that most of the places for LGBTQIA people are like bars. <laughs> yes. Involve okay. alcohol in some way, shape, or form. And Absolutely. that's really hard when you're looking for community, especially a sober community as an LGBTQIA person. It's really hard. And not just within that, but happy hour. I mean, who hasn't right. been happy hour, right? Because that's what everybody thinks we need to do at the end of the week is unwind. And how parents are, you know, adults, really, anybody talks about like, oh, it's been a long day. I need to go have a drink. It's mm -hmm. just so entrenched in our culture that we have to really fight really hard to make a space that doesn't focus around it. And it is yeah. such a pivotal piece of how people interact, how capitalism functions. It has to be able to make money, right? Totally. So it's a place that doesn't make money. It's probably not going to last very long. Yeah. Yeah. So for teachers who may have LGBTQIA students in the classroom, what can they do to support these kids that could help decrease risk? Pronouns are super important. I think we're beginning to be a bit better, but could always be some improvement around there. So asking for people's pronouns, what their name is, if it's different than a name that might be on a roster that somebody has. Uh, being able to have like an open door policy or safe space, 
met, whether that's also like at lunchtime, like, oh, we could have come and eat in my classroom. Um, I've also seen, I don't know how realistic this is, but some teachers who might do like a check-in with kids of like, hey, I have a post-it note. Can you write like how you're doing that day? Or like write your name on the back and go put it somewhere on a chart if this is something that like you're needing support around today or like you're good. So really including mental health into the picture too, because kids go through so much outside of school. And a lot of times we expect them to be perfect and perform like robots and they are not. So we need to really be attuned with taking that extra step to make sure they feel seen and heard and valued. Mm -hmm. What about parents of LGBTQIA youth? What can they do to help in decreasing the risk of substance use in their kids and teens? Talk to their kids. I know this is a, can be really hard for some folks, but just being able to ask them like, hey, what's going on? And maybe they'll be honest with you. Maybe they won't. But also just letting them know, hey, I'm here for you. Like maybe we can go do something that you want to do together. Or it doesn't just have to be parent making the decisions about what the family does. If it's game night and you rotate who chooses in the family to do that or a movie. I think also taking a look at what your use might be and how you can be a role model to your kids. If you are having, you know, happy hour multiple times a week or, you know, drinking a bit more, um, you know, how is your kid going to feel like they can necessarily like respect you or like, you know, you're drinking, why can't I drink? And I hear that a lot from the teens that I work with, like what, you know, why can't I be doing this if other people are doing it? Whether that's, uh, you know, marijuana, tobacco, nicotine, or wine, or alcohol, anything else really, just the access, right? Like they see the people in their communities doing it, whether they're straight or not. And that's what they're drawn to because that's what they're around. Now, this question is a a hard question. I acknowledge this. What advice do you have for parents of LGBTQIA youth who have difficulty accepting their child's sexual orientation or gender? Do your work outside of just expecting your kids to teach you things. So if that means you need to go to a community support meeting or find something online, there are so many resources out there for parents and families. They can also be faith-based. It doesn't just have to be specific to, you know, YMCA kind of thing. Um, Also, being able to take your kid's lead on that. So if your kid comes out to you as, you know, trans, non-binary, or LGBTQIA, the other end of the spectrum as well, asking them, like, how can I support you? What are you needing right now? Is this something you want me to share with the family, or do you want to tell them? Or is this something that just stays with us for now? I hear a lot about people being outed accidentally Mm -hmm. or unintentionally by their parents, you know, the, you just have an update and you don't think it's a big deal. Like, oh, so-and-so told me that they're a lesbian now. And your kids will overhear that or know that and feel like they, you broke their confidence and their privacy. And it's something that can be so private for somebody, even if we feel like, oh, it shouldn't be a big deal. Like everybody should know, but take it seriously if your kid comes out to you, whatever that might look like, because it's a big deal to them if they feel like this is a step that they have to take regardless. So acknowledging that, validating them, also checking in with like the other adults in their lives. So maybe they go to a, fam- uh, a family's family member's house a lot or like a, another friend's house. What do the adults look like there? Are they supportive and accepting or 
Is there something else, you know, maybe more toxic that's not being talked about? Uh, what are things like if they go visit somebody else in the family, um, you know, aunt, uncle, grandparents, things like that? You know, what are some other things we can do to help protect them or make them feel safe and seen and heard? That's the ultimate thing, right? Like you are there as a caregiver and as much as teenagers don't always want to be around their parents, like it's your job to take care of them and learn what you can do. There are so many resources online and in our communities that there's really no excuse for just continuing to perpetrate, you know, negative stereotypes and consequences around things that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, what I, the pushback that I get from some parents at times is, well, how can we do that if we don't agree with it? And, you know, another thing I want to say, too, is this is where I think it's really important for parents to get their own therapy as well with a provider who knows something about gender and can guide you, like, through that sort of work, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like, who are, what are your biases? That's the biggest thing. And whether or not you agree with your kid, we know that a protective factor is knowing that like you still care about and love them. And a lot of times they'll perceive like, you don't agree with me. That means that you don't love me or care about me separate from anything else that has happened in life. Right. So there is a way to be able to hold both as far as you are still important to me and I love you. And maybe this isn't something I understand right now. Maybe it's something I can learn about more or something I can continue to work on my own, but this doesn't mean that your kid is broken or defective. And that's a lot of the messaging that people get when Mm -hmm. a parent might say like, you're wrong, like you're going to go to hell or any other spectrum of things that kids might hear or internalize or expect. Mm -hmm. Now, my understanding is that you're in recovery yourself. Um, Can you give us some info on what that journey has been like for you and as a, an aside to this also, I want to say you grew up in South Texas, so did I. And I know that the culture in South Texas is very much a drinking culture. Um, you know, I, I can recall when I was in high school going to Progresso uh, to cross the border to drink in Mexico, you know, on occasion. Um, you know, there's parties all the time you see or tias and tios, like, you know, everybody's over and drinking and it's a big part of the culture. Um, So I'm also curious, in addition to that question, I'm curious how that experience also shaped that, that, uh, the substance use. Absolutely. It's all of those things. Uh, Personally, I've been in recovery for about six years and what my recovery looks like has nothing to do with what a client's recovery may or may not look like, what their use may or may not look like. And I am very intentional if I do share this with clients, I'm open about it. It's not something that I hide. That is also part of why I love working with this population and decided to do my LCDC and kind of go that route was knowing how much of an intersection there is with different identities that I hold and how many clients we have that share similar experiences. With that as well, uh, it's been, it's been rocky, but part of what I mentioned with uh, needing to kind of take a break after grad school was doing a lot of my own like trauma work and ultimately figuring out like, 
is what I'm doing substance use wise still working for me? And is this something that I want to be doing long term? You know, there are a lot of things that happen as far as like risk factors go. And I found ultimately that the things I was doing on a personal basis were really putting me at risk to not be able to work with kids and teens. And if I ever have anything like that on my record, that makes it harder to do the work that I want to do, which was one of like the biggest motivating factors for me, aside from hangovers or just not wanting to feel miserable all the time. Um, Being able to know that the amount of work I'm putting into wanting to be a social worker and a therapist, you know, why am I going behind my back to just counter all of that? As far as growing up in the Valley, uh, yeah, lots of drinking, lots of access. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I did not go to Progresso, but knew plenty of folks who did. Well, I think, uh, well, because you're a little bit younger than me, and the border started getting much more dangerous, like towards the end of high school for me. Mm-hmm. So I think it may have been like it may have been like a no go by the time you may have been there. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was definitely like on the cusp of like this is not a safe thing that we do anymore. And my social circle was small at that point. I didn't hang out with a ton of my peers necessarily. I was a freshman and dated somebody much older than me. So naturally, I was around people who were 21 when I was in high school. So I had access to it in that way. And we just, you know, could party if we wanted to. I also tried to have my own boundaries at that point of what things looked like, but that didn't mean that I hadn't already, you know, experimented or tried other things. And that evolved, you know, as I got into college or like later on, it kind of evolved into my twenties. But um, something that I try to be really intentional about was also a part of being in grad school and learning more about self-care and boundaries. And what does that look like for me? And, you know, self-care sometimes is like, oh, I guess maybe I'll have a drink after a really rough week, like we've mentioned. And at a point like that can become something more and it loses its benefit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did your sexual orientation play a role in your substance use at all? For sure. I have known that I was bisexual since I was 12. It was something that I didn't even tell my family about until my early 20s because I grew up in the valley, like you mentioned. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, that's that's why I didn't transition until I was like 32 and I had been out of the valley for a while, but still had many ties, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I can tell you a handful of people that were out of my school were not treated very well. No. So if that was something that I shared with folks, it, it was dangerous. It was super dangerous. So it was really easy to just pass as straight or, you know, use whatever I wanted to, to my advantage at that point of like, you know, getting attention from people or that kind of thing. But yeah, that's tough. Uh, we also, that was a special place. It really is. Uh, some good tamales, but <laughs> I'm okay. Visiting <laughs> my family there. Yes. Delia's, uh, my partner did not know what a tamale was like in that way until they had had Delia's. Now that's like a Christmas tradition, of course, like with my family. Yep. Yep. I had somebody who had never eaten a tamale before. They were like, do I eat the, the outer part too? <laughs> I was like, You're like, you can't, no, it's you horrible. Take, <laughs> yeah, that that's, doesn't sound good. But no. yeah, no, I, I, I love Delia's tamales like around the holidays too. It's so hard. You have to book an order so far in advance too. It's, Yep. So worth it and delicious. Yes. Yeah. We have a family um, text. So I think in 
maybe October and November, it's like, okay, what do you want for Christmas? And do you want extra to take back with you? So it's part of it. The answer to that is always yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So anything else you want to mention regarding your journey of sobriety? I think what we mentioned about community is super important. Um, I got sober and didn't know anybody else who was sober. Tried some of the 12-step stuff and was like, I don't know what that is, not going back. Um, and eventually it became super important to my own like mental health and my sobriety to find people that had similar values and weren't going drinking or partying. Uh, being able to find a place where I could feel like I could be my true self and accepted and other people weren't going to care how much you partied or drank in the past. They're going to be able to like resonate with that and agree with that and help you through the work. That was like the important part too, for me. Um, Where'd you find those people? Um, I randomly found somebody when I, (laughs) this is kind of like a, a weird story about like one of my closest friends, but I was at juice land. She worked at juice land and was giving out samples and said, Hey, this is like a really great mixer. And I was like, Oh, I don't drink. And she's like, I don't either. And so from there, <laughs> we just kind of talked about, um, like, you know, a group that she had, and that's how it evolved, um, being able to just be open to it and look at it from, like, a certain lens and being able to, like, take from that what I needed to be able to, like, come into my own and be my true self and not have to hide behind whatever substance use or substance at that point, you know, was, was coming up for me on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. If I recall correctly, there is an AA, an LGBTQIA AA group. Is it the Galano Club? Is that the one I'm thinking? Yeah, Galano Club is like the name or of it. Or is it NA? Uh, there's actually AA and NA there, so okay. it is a mix. Um, and I know everybody here is 12 step. They tend to like run for the hills if they haven't had good experiences. Yeah. So I try to encourage folks just to have an open mind. Um, go to a couple of meetings if you're into it. Um, just try to find people. There's also like smart recovery and Dharma recovery mm-hmm. and different things. Um, because of the pandemic, a ton of stuff is online that wasn't before. So now you can so much more accessible. Exactly. Like you can go to meetings all around the world and find something and um, you'll resonate with somebody somewhere. You just have to be open to it. And that's the hard part. Um, if right. you're really trapped in that shame. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know what you think about this, but one of the things that I have noticed is that guilt and shame only seems to perpetuate substance use. Um, Like it's the cycle where somebody, you know, relapses and then they feel like a ton of guilt and shame about that, which then just kind of like pushes them toward using and like, and then like it just keeps happening. Like it's the self-reinforcing cycle. Definitely. It all just cycles and perpetuates. And that's, you know, it doesn't matter like what your gender identity or sexual orientation is. That's, that's what it is, right? Right. Um, You've hurt people around you. You've hurt yourself. You've lied to yourself a lot. You've done harm in different ways, whether that's work, school, family, friends, your living situation. And you feel like there's no way to go back to that, or it feels incredibly impossible to be able to face that and own up for anything that you've done. And yeah, it is overwhelming and it's a lot. And there are ways to get support, whether that's also with an individual therapist or 
you know, an individual or group therapist, IOP, you know, 12-step meeting, any of the others. There are people that have been through what you've been through, whether it's, you know, been worse or not, um, but will like hold you and accept you and not, you know, try to perpetuate that shame and guilt. You know, a, a lot of people struggle with forgiving themselves for things they did while they were using, even once, you know, they're say five, 10 years sober. What advice do you have for those folks? That's definitely something I've personally struggled with. Like when you're using, you are not your best self. And I've tried to come to terms with just knowing that all of the crap that I went through and did to myself and others, like I was able to make amends and try to clean up my side of the street, so to speak. But that also led me to be where I am today. And I wouldn't be that person without that experience. So trying to have some self-compassion for that process. Right. And hold myself accountable, of course, right? But it's it's a lot of that. And it's a lot of what does your inner dialogue look like? Like, is there so much shame that it's hard to come out of? What do you need to be able to like try to move past that? And mm-hmm. it's different depending on what happened or what your past looks like, or if you have a record or anything's like anything else like that. But I promise there is a way forward. You do not have to like live in that for the rest of your life. What advice do you have for parents and family of LGBTQIA youth and adults who may be using substances? Some of that is the harm reduction stuff we talked about. So whether that's sticking with one substance, testing your drugs, switching out your needles, uh, that kind of thing is really important. Just mitigating harm um, as best you can, but also, um, being able to kind of set limits, uh, boundaries with your family, if that needs to be more of like an Al-Anon or family support group, you can do that as well. Uh, Just talk to them when you can. Hold your boundaries, hold your limits, but also see what they're needing or what they're coming from, whether that's just experimentation and use or whether that's like a full-blown disorder that's really taken over their lives. of course, following their lead and not outing them, showing them that you accept who they are and like who their partners are if they bring somebody home. That's also like a huge point of contention. Totally, yeah. Yeah, like if, you know, I'm queer and I bring home a partner of XYZ identity, is that going to be okay? Am I going to be allowed at Christmas? Are we going to fight? What do I need to do to be okay around that? Yeah. And being able to own up to like, are you doing something that's perpetuating that? What do you need to do for yourself to show like, Hey, I'm really here for you. And I'm not going to blame you for everything that's going on. Um, yeah. Trying to be there with them through that and yeah. help them. Okay, cool. Um, switching gears back to you as a therapist, What kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? Various different kinds of experience. Uh, I know I mentioned some community mental health care. Um, So that's kind of come in with, as far as like transgender clients at different points of their transition or self-discovery or whatever that might look like. Um, That's been kind of on and off for at least the past eight or 10 years. 
um, as well before that and some personal experience too. So I'm able to use that to help relay like whatever inform whatever else might be going on. Um, I have worked some with some undocumented folks, not something I have a ton of experience in, but I'm always willing to learn and do the work that I need to do to support somebody. And if that means referring them to somebody who really knows what they're doing, right. I would really do that. And the same with uh, BIPOC, like you mentioned, I do my work as much I can around anti-racism, just try to support people. And I'm like, hey, I know what my identity is. I know I can try to help you, but if I'm not a good fit, that's okay. Like, let's try to get you the help that you need and find somebody or the resources to really get your needs met. Okay. You know, a lot of people, when they make that first appointment with a therapist, they just like agonize about the, the appointment getting closer and get really anxious about it. So an effort to help calm some of that anxiety, what could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about on an ongoing basis? From an initial session, uh, we might have had a phone consultation and talked a little bit. I do offer like a free 15 to 20 minute phone consultation for new folks. So kind of getting a gauge for what you're needing and if I'm a good fit for that. Um, and that also includes like what does cost look like, your schedule. And I will send over some paperwork. So the expectation is that's done before we meet, which gives you a chance to, to kind of look through some of the things that we might be talking about. Um, we'll currently doing telehealth. So naturally just, I think a little bit more comfort with people being able to be at home in their own space. Mm-hmm. And an intake might look like what's bringing you here today? What's going on? Like, what are some things that you feel like you need some support around? And I do try to, you know, take a look at what does an eating disorder history look like or substance use or mental health, you know, what treatment you've been in, what the risks or current things are for you right now, you know, what point of life are you in? Also, what stage are you in? Are you like wanting to make any changes or is this like, you know, things are okay enough as they are, but here's something else that I want to talk about. So not putting my somebody. Yeah. Or, or did somebody make you come? That's always a, oh, absolutely. a fun one. Definitely. Um, like, do you want to be here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you want to talk about this? Uh, you know, what do we have to do to like break the ice or like make this more amenable to what you're needing right now? Um, right, right. And I do, especially if I'm working with teens and parents try to be specific about these are the boundaries about what we might talk about in session and what I can share with your parents, what I have to share. Right. And confidentiality also comes up with adults. It looks a bit different, but yeah, we can talk about this and like, here are the few specific things that if you mention, we need to talk about next steps. Right. Right. Okay. How would you say your clients describe or experience you? I think it can kind of vary depending. Um, some folks you know, if their personality is a bit more like quirky or fun or, you know, kind of like laughing a lot, like that might be a bit more playful, but also being able to be there. If somebody's having a really rough day, um, I try to tell people like, this is your space to show up as you need to. This is not for you to think that you have to be a certain way in our sessions, or if you don't do this, I'm going to be disappointed. Um, I try to let people know, like, you know, if you want homework, we'll talk about it. Or if this is something you want to do with like really specific goal setting, you know, week to week. 
And if that's not happening, like what are the barriers? Is this something that's really lucrative to what you're needing right now? Are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? And when I say cry, I don't mean like bawling. Hysterical? <laughs> yeah. I, I absolutely laugh with clients. I try to laugh myself a lot and um, like to be playful with, you know, either teens or adults or whoever, just about, yeah, the world at large is a mess right now. Like what's going on What in like your realm and what do we need to talk about? We will also talk about like, recent you know shows or movies or like cool things that happen so I do like to be playful with people and I do cry with them of course like within reason right um right but I do sometimes share with folks like you know it seems like there's a lot going on and I'm noticing like I'm tearing up a little bit right now um I wonder what you know is coming up for you or being able to just kind of reflect that right as part of that relational experience Totally. Okay. How do you define holding space for someone? Sometimes that looks like, you know, do we need to set a container for whatever we're going to talk about? And that's not just specific to EMDR, but the container of, you know, this virtual space, it's different if you're in an office and you have like a physical room and that place that people come, but, you know, me being able to tell people like, I have a white noise machine, nobody else can hear what we're talking about some of the confidentiality aspect, but also like this is your space to talk about and bring what you want. And if that's really set goals or expectations every week, like I can help you with that. And if that's you bringing up something else that's going on, we can also do that. Um, do we need to process some trauma stuff? We can work through that, especially with a lot of the global stuff happening throughout this pandemic, especially, right? Like there's a lot right. happening on a regular basis. So being flexible with what clients are needing at different points, depending on external factors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Boundaries and self-care. And self-care is not just have a glass of wine, like we've talked about. <laughs> no, your no, it's not. <laughs> Self-care self is really not as glamorous as like people make it sound like it's not all bubble baths, you know? Uh, definitely. And I think some people are just like burned out on hearing about that at a certain point because it's just like, well, what does that mean? And for me, self-care is something that's constantly evolving, whether that was at the beginning of my you know social work career versus what that looks like now, um, beginning of pandemic to now, uh, sometimes yeah. that means ordering food because I don't have it in me to cook tonight or being able to just put on a movie that I know I don't have to think about and I like. Um, and sometimes that means going to my own therapy, which I think we'll probably touch on a bit more, but my own like medical and mental health care, which I under, you know, understand is definitely like a privilege because I have access to that. But um, that's something I have to do for myself to be able to also continue to show up for my clients. Right. And, you know, self-care can even include, like you said, um, boundaries. You know, self-care can include setting a hard boundary with someone close to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, As part of the intake process, too, I try to let clients know, if you text or email me on the weekend, I'm not going to respond until I'm back. Right. Um, yeah. Don't take it personal. It's not about you. I'm trying to be, like, really 
strict with that, which is hard to continue to enforce sometimes as a helper in a helping profession. Um, it is also around, yeah, people in my family. I can no longer watch Law and Order and, you know, Criminal Minds and all that, but my partner loves it. So, okay, you can watch that, like, when we're not together or I'm in a different room or, like, after I've gone to bed or different things like that. So being able to kind of talk about those boundaries as well with your family. Mm -hmm. Does that mean I need some alone time after a long day? And, you know, not always, but sometimes being able to express that, but also take a minute to check in for myself. Like, what do I need on a regular basis? Right. Yeah, I think self-care, this kind of working definition I have of it internally has been like this. Like, to me, self-care is constantly striving for balance in some way. Always, yeah. And that in and of itself can be an exhausting task because trying to figure out, okay, like, well, I feel this way today is different from yesterday. What do I need today versus yesterday? You know, like, it's a, a very, like, interesting process. It really is. And I think at one point I joked with the supervisor around, like, oh, balance. Like, maybe one day I'll have, have it figured out. And they're like, you may not ever have that figured out. <laughs> like, this may be a continual effort for you which feels a little hopeless if you think about it in an existential frame, but it is something to know that like, I'm not the same person I was at the beginning of the pandemic five years mm -hmm. ago, 10 years ago. So my needs are going to continue to evolve and change, especially with work from home and what things look like currently, you know, right. being able to set up, you know, what boundaries I need to have in place, whether that's my schedule or things with my family or on the weekend, you know, I only work certain days at X, Y, Z, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, okay. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? I was always that kid growing up that people came to when they needed to talk about something. And so naturally it was, you know, interesting that I became a therapist, of course, right? But um as I've continued to be in this profession and continue to realize I can't be everything to everyone, that is probably like the biggest lesson that I've learned that some people will not like you and that is okay. Some parents may not like me, that is okay. Some clients may change their mind or have different needs and that is okay. That doesn't mean that I'm a failure. It doesn't mean that they're a failure. People's needs and the things that they need to kind of get through their day-to-day, -day, those all change and evolve. Like we're all human, right? We're not robots. So being okay with coming to terms with knowing that, you know, I'm not for everybody and that's okay. I can't remember the origin of this quote, but I recall hearing at some point, how does it go? It's, uh, if everybody likes you, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, being a chameleon can only get you so far. And that has a role that's very much a protective factor, like we kind of talked about, right? Like we have to sort of conform to whatever we think we need to get through certain situations or stages in life. And as you become, you know, hopefully more stable adult slash professional, um, you're starting to figure out like, I don't have to be everybody's friend. I don't have to have everybody like me. And that's okay. Like, it's okay to 
to not be on the top of everybody's list. Right, right. So what do you do to take care of yourself? And like, is there one thing after a hard day that you absolutely have to do for yourself? I love my fizzy drinks. So I have a blood orange soda. It's like my favorite go-to or the ginger beer. I really like if I've had, you know, a long day. So it's my version of wine, I guess. Um, Something besides water and coffee that I've probably had a ton of throughout the day. (laughs) Um, Making sure I've eaten is a huge thing. Like pizza is my favorite. Doesn't matter. Like I will always eat pizza. So part of that for me is like making sure that I'm eating throughout the day, taking enough breaks when I can between clients or appointments or other things that I might have going on. Um, Spending some time outside or with friends or sometimes going to get coffee away from my house on a day that I'm still working from home because I just need some type of normalcy. Listen to some music on the way. Yeah. Yeah. Totally get that. How would you define happiness? It's not something I've thought about in a while. Um, I think that would really be more of this feeling of like a peace of mind of not having something constantly hanging over your head, whether that's work or family or finances. And it's not to say that that stuff is ever done and finalized, but it's being able to create a bit of space for yourself within all of that, finding some time in the chaos to take a deep breath and like really feel, you know, a bit of reprieve not having mm-hmm. that, all that weighing on you all the time. Yeah. What is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician? I think I mentioned that I had worked with teens and families. Uh, so we had like a parent group that ran while we worked with the kids and the teens. And this is like queer Erica, early 20s. So I had a pixie cut V-neck, wore my Vans and my jeans And I'd have parents come up to me thinking that I was one of the clients, like that I was a teenager in the group. (laughs) And I'd be like, oh, no, I'm actually the therapist. Like, surprise. (laughs) It's hard being a young therapist, you know? Um, And, you know, I remember when I first started with my internship, I was working with people who were significantly older than me. And, like, you know... you, you get questions sometimes. <laughs> um, and also, like, I don't know, it's just, it, it creates an interesting dynamic, I think. Definitely. And, you know, does that mean that there's some transference or counter-transference, something mm-hmm. that comes up in a different way now that I'm doing mm-hmm. more individual work? But I do have some clients that are older than me or parents sometimes that are just like, what are your credentials? Like, what do you right, think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People usually do that after they see my hand tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I have tattoos. I promise. I have my nose pierced. I have blue hair currently. <laughs> I'm not 12. I promise. Can confirm. She does have tattoos and blue hair <laughs> <laughs> and a piercing. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, Are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? Yes, I am currently in therapy. I go once a week, which really helps with (laughs) navigating my own stuff, 
mm-hmm. especially around client work. And I've been in and out of therapy since I was a teenager myself. So lots of therapists could not even tell you all of their names or credentials, but <laughs> some good, some bad. You learn. Yeah. Okay. Well, Erica, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapist to know about you or your topic today? Not that I can think of. I think, uh, you know, ultimately just trying to be open-minded with either folks that you may know if there is substance use involved and of course the other things we talked about, but um, really leaning into like what has happened to somebody to get them to this point and not seeing them as like malicious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes they can be, but we don't all get to this place overnight. So that's the reality. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Erica. It was a real pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. I enjoyed getting to talk to you more and, chat about all this fun stuff. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring Sladja Redner, Licensed Professional Counselor Associate, supervised by Jill Praisner, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor, who will be talking about her work in an area of specialty, growing beyond limiting patterns and returning to your true self. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest podcasts rely solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash NextQuestPodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.